All right. In this session of the listener's commentary on Romans, we're going to look specifically at Romans 7, 7 through 12. But before we look at the details of that small paragraph, I want us to step back for a second and just look at really an overview of Romans 7, 7 through the end of Romans 7, Romans 7, 25, and make sure we understand that whole section in its proper context in the proper way. Because this section has been subject to a lot of misunderstanding because we haven't paid attention to both the immediate context and to the questions that Paul is answering, okay? And so we need to bear in mind as we look at Romans 7, 7 through 25, that this whole section, these two paragraphs, is really dealing with the problem of the law. He's answering the question, what's wrong with the law? It's not primarily about the Christian's struggle with sin. Might have some things that apply to that, might have some things to say about that, but the immediate thing Paul is talking about, the question he's answering in its original context is, what's wrong with the Old Testament law? And the reason Paul has to address that question is because over the course of Romans up to this point, Paul has been saying some pretty negative things about the law. In Romans 3, verse 20, he said, no one's going to be put right with God and be part of his people by keeping the Old Testament law, by keeping the Torah, right? In Romans 3, 28, he said, it's by faith that being put in the right relationship with God happens, and it's not by the law. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he said, somehow the law is tangled up with sin and the result was that when the law came on the scene of history, transgressions increased. So rather than solving the problem of sin and transgression, the law increased it. In Romans chapter 6, 14, in our immediate context, Paul said that sin's no longer your master. Why? Well, because you're not under the, the law, the Torah. And so he's been saying some pretty harsh things about the law, and that leads him to really feel like, okay, so now I need to help you understand what really the problem is. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, the paragraph that is the immediate springboard for this the, the section in Romans 7, 5, Paul said that the law somehow was complicit with sin in such a way that it aroused sinful passions and caused people to bear fruit for death. I mean, that's a pretty harsh and negative assessment of the law. And this is not the typical Jewish view of the law. And so here Paul is writing to this mixed audience of Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus. And in doing so, he's actually demoting the law. He's putting the law down a few notches, right? He's demoting the law and as and he's doing so by saying some pretty negative things about it. And thus, Paul has to address the question, so what, what's wrong with the law? What, what's the problem with the law? And thus, he's going to do that in these next two paragraphs that we're going to look at, first in this session, and then in the following section, we'll get the second one. Doug Moo, in his commentary on Romans, puts it like this. He says, Paul's negative evaluation of the effect of the Mosaic law reaches its crescendo in 7, 1 through 6. He accuses the law of arousing sin and of keeping those who are under its authority from coming to know Christ or experiencing the new life of the Spirit. It's no wonder, then, that Paul asks the question, is the law sin? And that's the question that sets up the paragraph we want to look at 
in this this session here. As we've noted several times in Romans chapter 6 and 7, we have to pay attention to the question Paul is asking because that helps us understand the answer. And so in Romans 6, 1 is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. In Romans 6, 15, it's, shall we continue in sin since we're under grace and not under the law? May it never be. Well, here in Romans 7, 7, we get that same sort of question. The question he's asking and answering in this paragraph is, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And again, the answer is, may it never be. So we're answering a question about the nature of the law. Is the law sin? And in fact, in the following paragraph, the question is, well then, is that which is good a cause for death for me? Referring to the law. Is, since the law, you say Paul is good, yet it caused my death, is my death the law's fault? It may never be. So we've got to pay attention to these questions that he's asking and answering in order to make sure we really understand what he's saying. So here, beginning in Romans 7, 7, all the way through the end of the chapter, Paul is really dealing with the problem of the law and where did the law go wrong. And Paul is brilliant in how he does this. In these two paragraphs, 7, 7 through 12 and 7, 13 through 25, Paul basically says the law couldn't solve the problem of sin and death, but it's not the law's fault. And so on one hand, he upholds the law as being a good gift from God, teaching the right way to go, teaching wisdom from God. So the law, as Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. And yet the law could never make people holy and righteous and good. Why is that? That's what we're going to learn in this session and the next session as Paul deals with what's wrong with the law. So let's jump in and listen to some of the details. We've already read verse 7, but let's read it again because it's the question we need to recognize that Paul is answering. So verse 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And remember, that question really is spurred out of what he said in the first paragraph of chapter 7, where he accused the law of arousing sinful desires and Uh, said that people need to die to the law so that they can actually bear fruit for God. And so the natural question is, well, then the law must be the problem. Is the law sin? Paul says, may it never be. That's the wrong answer. That's not the right way to think about it. We got to think more precisely and clearly about it. So yes, the law's day is done. Yes, people had to die to the law, but no, the law is not sin. So How do we understand this? Well, Paul's going to go on and explain. So continuing to read in verse 7, Paul says, On the contrary, in other words, the law is not sin. Rather, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And so as we noted in our last session, this is playing off of Romans chapter 5, where Paul says that uh, there was a time. When sin was in the world before the law, then the law came into the world. But the effect of the law coming into the world, Paul says there at the end of Romans 5, is that it actually increased transgression. And Paul really is dealing with that same idea here. So the law isn't sin, but what the law did do was it named sin. 
think of it this way, that the law actually gave sin a face and a name so we would know exactly what it was we were struggling with, exactly what it was we were dealing with, and thus it increased transgression in the sense, now we crossed a specific boundary. Now we crossed a known law. A very sp Instead of just having this general sense of missing the mark and falling short, the law named sin, enunciated sin, gave it a face. And so now we actually knew who sin was. We knew what it was called. We, that's what Paul means when he says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law gave sin a face and a name. Now, another really important little detail that shows up for the first time here in the second part of verse 7, and it actually is going to continue all the way through the end of chapter 7, is the first person. Paul says here, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about co coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet, right? Um, and so through this paragraph, we're going to get I, me, my, right? We're talking first person. And that could be a little confusing because it immediately makes us think Paul is talking exclusively about himself and his experience. And while what he says is likely true about himself, some of the things he says means, oh, it goes beyond himself, right? And so as we read down through this, it becomes a little confusing, this whole first person. What is Paul doing? So let me just offer what I think Paul is doing. Uh, I don't think he's talking exclusively and only about himself, even though he's using first person. Uh, he's really doing what was a well-established rhetorical technique in his day and age called impersonation. He's assuming the posture and the character of a person um, that he wants to communicate from their vantage point. What I think Paul is doing is he wants to communicate from the vantage point of really his Jewish kinsmen, his Jewish audience, so that he can speak very personally and passionately about this issue of the law without pushing his Jewish audience away. And so he speaks personally in personal terms because that, that's going to involve him in it and not push his audience away. And so he's, he's really taking the persona of a faithful Jew, at least through parts of this, and in some regards what he's actually doing here in uh, this paragraph, 7, 7 through 12, is he's actually going to speak from the vantage point of what it was like when the law came on the scene. Um, when the law, like as he said in chapter 5, there was a day when sin was in the world before the law, then the law came on the scene of history, and the result of that was transgression increased. And Paul is just really, in kind of dramatic fashion, telling that story again, using the first person here, so that we can understand what happened with the law and how the law had this effect of increasing sin, increasing transgression. And he's using the first person so he can speak very personally about this, all right? He speaks as a Jew who has become a Christian, and looking back now, he sees more clearly than ever what it was like to try to please God while still in Adam and still under the flesh and and yet trying to please God by the law, but not having the Spirit to help him do it. That's what's going on here. 
And so he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law named it. And then he gives an example in this last little bit of verse 7. He uses the example of coveting. Commandment number 10 in the Ten Commandments. He says, for I wouldn't have known, usually translate known about, but it's no in like the, the deep sense, the personal sense. I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. doesn't mean he wouldn't have experienced coveting. Sin was in the world before the law, right? But, but the law gave it a name. Oh, that's what I'm experiencing. That's called coveting. Now I know what that is. And did the law set you free from that? Well, that's the problem. The law did not. So he explains why that was. And so the law gave sin a face and a name. In his example, coveting. Oh, that's what that is. And look what happened in verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet. That's the commandment. And the example he's giving, right? So sin, setting up camp and using the commandment as like a, a home base, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Did you catch that? So here the law says, you shall not covet. Oh, that's what I'm experiencing. And instead of setting me free from that, it actually produced in me coveting of every kind. And although we may not fully understand exactly why or how it all works, all of us, I think, are familiar with the fact that that's often the way it does work, right? You tell someone, don't do this, and immediately they want to do it. If you've raised kids, you've seen that with your kids. You give an instruction, and immediately they want to cross that instruction, right? That somehow good commands, good instructions stir up within us a desire to break those instructions. And the example that Paul is using here is the example of coveting, one of the Ten Commandments. So when the law came on the stage of history, it gave sin a face and a name. And rather than actually setting people free from coveting or murder or stealing or whatever the commandment was, it actually had the opposite effect. Somehow sin got involved in that and co-opted this good commandment and sin made us want to actually do it more, and sin produced in me all sorts of coveting in our example here. Then Paul says a really, in some ways, kind of hard to grasp statement at the end of verse 8. He says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And that's really, really difficult to try to figure out what, what Paul means. He, he can't mean um, sin is non-existent apart from the law, because Paul said in chapter 5, verse 13, that before the law came on the scene of history, that sin was in the world. And so he doesn't mean it's non-existent. Um, in some way, based on what Paul has said in chapter 7, 1 through 6, and what he says here, there's a connection between sin's power and the law. In fact, Paul actually even details that in other places, such as 1 Corinthians 15, 56. So in Paul's mind, there's a connection between the law and sin's power. And so somehow Paul seems to be saying that sin loses its power when the uh, apart from the law. And I don't fully get what he means by that. Most scholars don't. A lot of scholars wrestle with what exactly does Paul mean by that. It's not 100% clear what he means by that. Uh, but in the immediate context, what he's suggesting is that somehow the law actually made sin come to life. The law actually stirred up more coveting. The law, as he said in 
chapter 7, verse 5, stirred up all sorts of sinful desires. So somehow the law is an unwitting accomplice to sin. Now, Paul goes on in verse 9, and this is where it's obvious that the I doesn't refer to Paul himself, that it's a bigger experience, it's a bigger thing, that he's impersonating what it was like when the law came on the scene of history. Verse 9 makes that clear. Listen to what he says. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. That was never true for Paul. Paul was born during the days of the law. Paul lived his whole life under the law. Paul lived his whole life with a knowledge of the law being brought up as a Pharisee, right? So he talks about all of that in Philippians chapter 3. So that, that statement was never specifically true of Paul himself. And thus that tells us that the, the I that Paul is using here, the first person, is bigger than Paul himself. He is taking on the posture or the persona of somebody who, in verse 9 here, who was alive before the law came on the scene. This is what it was like when the law came in the world. This is what happens when all of a sudden um, the law took force in this world. So I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin somehow became alive and I died. And so picture, if you will, what Paul said in chapter 5, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law came on the scene. All of a sudden the law comes on the scene and what happened? Did it bring life? Did it put sin away? Actually, no. The opposite happened. When the commandment came, in other words, when a specific commandment, such as you shall not lie, you shall not steal, or in our case, you shall not covet. When that came on the scene there at Mount Sinai, right, when the law was given, what happened? Well, what happened was it actually fanned into flame sinful desires, and people died. You can read the story in Exodus chapter 20 where even there, literally, in that historical moment of the law being given, you have people sinning and committing adultery and being unfaithful to God in that very moment, that very moment. And so when the law came on the scene, um, the law actually did not set people free from sin and death. It's an unwitting accomplice to it. And that's Paul's point here. Now, verse 10, he says, and this commandment, which was supposed to result in life, right? It was a good commandment. It has its goal to result in life. It actually proved, Paul says, to result in death for me. Why? Well, he restates in verse 11, For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. So was it the law's fault? Well, no, not really. It was sin. Sin is so sneaky, so vile, so powerful that sin somehow co-opted the law and twisted the law from its good life-giving intent and purpose and used it to become a source of deception and death. And thus, Paul ends this paragraph by saying, so then, the law, it's not the law's fault. The law is exonerated. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul wants to make sure he doesn't totally push away his Jewish, Jewish audience, right? He wants to make sure people don't overstate the problem of the law. The law itself is good. Its commandments are holy and righteous and good. The, the law tells us wise things, right? It's a, supposed to be a source of life. The problem is that it couldn't put sin to death. The problem is Sin somehow co-opted the law and used it for deceitful 
uh, death-dealing purposes rather than actually bringing life. So, is the law sin? No, but the law was taken advantage of by sin and used by sin, and thus it became a source of death. And the law, therefore, is not going to be the thing that brings uh, life. It's not going to be the thing that puts people into a right relationship with God. It's not going to be the thing that sets people from the free from the law of sin and death. There's got to be another way. All right, now before we leave this, I want to make sure we uh, we hear what Paul says here in verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And the reason we I want to make sure we hear this is because I think all too often in the church, I've heard too many people run down the Old Testament law, denigrate the Old Testament law in ways that the Apostle Paul never would. Now, the Apostle Paul, as I noted in the introduction, has said some pretty negative and harsh things about the law. And yet here, he he restates this idea that the law is holy and righteous and good. So somehow we have to be, be like Paul and hold these two things in, in tension with each other. That the law is holy and righteous and good, but the law actually could not and never did achieve the ultimate purpose for mankind that God dreamed of. And the reason it didn't was because it couldn't take dead in sin people and make them alive. So it's not that the law itself is bad. It's that the people it was trying to fix, the people it was trying to uh, teach the right way to, were so dead in sin, the law couldn't solve their problem. So the law actually taught the right way to go, the good way to go, the holy way to go. It just couldn't make dead in sin people holy. And thus, it's really important for us to not overstate what's wrong with the law. Because the law, as Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. And thus, it's not really fair for us as Christians to say things like, well, you know, the law, the Old Testament's great because it's got great stories for kids in it, right? Or it's really not okay for us to say things like, well, you know, the Old Testament's just a bunch of legalistic rules. Or, oh, the Old Testament's all about rules and laws and legalism and turn our nose up at the Old Testament. Paul would never do that. Paul actually says here, the Old Testament is holy and righteous and good. Paul says in other places that things taught in the Old Testament are for our instruction. They're useful for us. Uh, you read some of the Psalms, and the Psalms are like tributes of praise to the Old Testament law. I'm thinking of like Psalm 1 or Psalm 19, talking about how wonderful the law is, or Psalm 119, where just this massive, long tribute of praise to the goodness and the wisdom of the law. And so Paul would agree with that. The law is not bad in the sense that it taught the wrong way to go or that it's you know just a bunch of legalistic rules. The law, Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. So Paul manages to love and honor and esteem the law and yet put the law in its proper place. The law's job was never... Uh, intended to be the final the final word on how God is going to make all things new. It was never intended to be the final word on how God is going to make people 
back into the kind of humans he designed them to be. The law was never intended to do that. The law had a temporary job, and Paul explains this more in detail in Galatians 3. You can actually reference uh, the commentary on Galatians 3 to hear more about it. But it had a temporary job to do until Messiah should come, and Messiah and the Spirit were going to be the ones that were going to lead people into everything God intended for them. And so the law is holy and righteous and good, just don't overstate its purpose. Its purpose uh, was never to be the final word on human living because it couldn't make human beings who were dead in sin the kind of people that God dreamed them to be. For that, there would be more help needed, and Paul will get to that in Romans chapter 8.